Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode... And we certainly have seen that teachers have designed their classrooms for kids and not with them. And uh, I just want to encourage teachers that uh, your best first effort might be for kids, and that's okay. It's the next parts where they're as valuable uh, of insight as you'll ever get. Because we also have space blindness, meaning that at some point in time, if we've been in a space for too long, we stop noticing the space. And so as you have space blindness, the best thing you can do is bring more voices and more ideas to the table, and that should be your students. Hey, it's Maria, and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your families are all doing well and staying calm and healthy. My guest today has served kids and families as a teacher, principal, technology director, and innovation leader for over 20 years. He brings synergy to instructional design, technology infusion, and learning space design. He believes that in this synergy is the educational gold that students need to be successful citizens in a modern world. I'm thrilled to introduce to you today Robert Dillon, author, consultant, and school designer. Robert has worked with teachers and leaders throughout the country and has been honored by the Center for Green Schools, the D School at Stanford University, the Back Institute for Education, and Future Ready Schools. During our conversation, we dive into the book he co-authored with Rebecca Hare called The Space a guide for educators. Robert shares actionable insights and best practices on how to design a flexible and agile learning space that fosters creativity, collaboration, teamwork, inclusion, and empathy. We also discuss what a good classroom design looks like in the age of social distancing and how teachers and educators can create a low-stress learning space that promotes health, joy, trust, and connection. Tune in to learn from an inspiring leader in education who is helping teachers develop a designer mindset and empowering their students to grow in an active and flexible learning space. Let's dive right in. Hello, Bob. Welcome to Impact Learning. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with your childhood. What's your favorite memory related to learning? Uh, you know, one of the things that really comes to mind is that I got a chance to be uh, camping and be outside so much of my childhood. So um, whether that was with my grandfather fishing and in the woods, or if that was with Boy Scouts and camping and doing those sorts of things, I just remember how much of my learning was beyond school. And so uh, I think that I've tried to bring that to my two daughters, and I think I've tried to uh, bring that to the schools where I've been a teacher and leader as well. 
Which aspects did you enjoy uh, the most being, again, out, outdoors, camping and other activities? Yeah, I think it's the exploration and the noticing. And I, I've tried to even bring that in, you know, as we've been kind of behind closed doors quite a bit lately. Uh, I've still tried to walk around my neighborhood and be kind of a noticer, you know, notice the animals that are around, notice the trees. It was actually a very amazing spring for me to watch from the trees budding to the leaves coming, to the flowers coming. And uh, I think in many years past, I've been really busy. But I think I picked up those skills of noticing subtle differences in the woods and noticing different things like that uh, as a child. And I've, I've really appreciated uh, holding on to that over time. Mm -hmm. What was the thinking around education at home? Yeah, so I had two parents that had not uh, gone to or graduated from college. So I'm a first-generation college student. Uh, that's always been kind of a badge of honor for me and one that's kind of uh, had me be an advocate for those students that I supported uh, in schools. And uh, uh, But there was a deep commitment to school being important and that being a priority and that we, uh, my sister and I, would not have an option but to be Uh, both going to college and graduating from college. So there was definitely a push there, even though we were the first generation. Mm -hmm. What did you study in college? I actually am a journalism major. And then a second to that, I was an education major. So for many years, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster and I uh, did internships on the radio and uh, did a number of those things uh, to bring two of my big passions together. One kind of talking about sports and kind of participating in that. But uh, what I've learned over the last 20 years is that a journalist is a story gatherer. And so much of education is about story gathering. And it's really been important for me to listen, to ask questions like a journalist, to be able to represent both sides of an argument. Uh, a lot of things I picked up in those early days of my undergrad and also Uh, being a part of the school newspaper in high school and in college uh, really helped as I became a, a middle school principal and then uh, further into my career. When did you decide to pursue uh, teaching, your teaching career? Yeah, it was actually late in my uh, college career. So I was a sophomore, junior in college. Um, but, you know, I actually had a great role model as a high school journalism teacher. And I said, you know what? I could actually take those skills of being a journalist and bring them back to a number of students and maybe build that passion in them. Uh, and, you know, then I taught high school English and loved the conversation around that and loved the digging into the literature pieces. And most importantly, uh, I still love the idea of helping folks feel like accomplished writers right? And helping students do that. And I've had some projects now where I've been able to help adults become published authors as well. So that's been a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Now I can see now you're connecting the dots for me, you know, <laughs> how you're doing different aspects in writing and publishing and books and all that. Uh, you also, so you started working as a teacher, but then you also pursued uh, further uh, education with your master's and your doctorate in education. Yeah, you know, I, I love to learn. And so it just seemed like a natural piece, but also it became a really great support structure. And I don't know if other people have experienced this, but as I worked through my master's, I was with a cohort of folks that were all kind of learning to be teachers and learning to be leaders at the same time. 
and that cohort uh, has followed me for 20 years. Those people are still great friends and great resources and great colleagues. And so that was a really beautiful thing about continuing to my learning. Uh, and then I've started to realize very quickly that I was an okay teacher, but the strengths that I had around being a leader and thinking in systems and supporting people uh, really was where I was going to be able to kind of shine in education. So uh, I quickly kind of moved into that space. Mm -hmm. And uh, you became a, a principal after you got your additional degrees. And a few years later, you made a little bit of a change. I'm not sure if it's a pivot, but you went into innovation. So how did this come about? Yeah, so I happened to be a middle school principal at what I thought was a pretty innovative school. Um, we were uh, really built on an experiential learning model. Uh, and we had students uh, outside, outside of the classroom, outside of the community about 20% of the time. We were also doing that in a very technology rich environment. Uh, now that's 10 or 11 years ago where that wasn't brand new, but it was certainly people weren't putting all those puzzle pieces together. And so we were getting a lot of inbound traffic from other schools around the country saying, what are you guys doing? How is that? How are you making this work? And I started to realize that all of these pieces that we were doing were some of the things that could transform education. And so I realized quickly that if I could take some of those ideas beyond a single school building to multiple schools and then to the region and then around the country, uh, would really have an opportunity to kind of uh, continue to support and help people and change some hearts and minds. And how are you doing this today within your current role and responsibilities? Yeah, so actually this year was a change for me. So um, I went from kind of working for a single district, uh, with that being at the core of my work, uh, to now I have projects and I'm supporting five, six, seven districts around the country uh, with whatever areas of school design are important. And as you can imagine, there are some very urgent things uh, that people are trying to fix and try to get ready for whether it's a virtual online school or whatever they're trying to do, or thinking long-term. How can we change things long-term to really take care of all of our students? And so uh, this year is unique uh, that I'm really, I don't have a job at the core, but I have lots and lots of schools that I'm uh, having a chance to impact. And it's been fantastic so far. Mm -hmm. Over the last... Uh you know, a few years that you've worked and now within your current role and that you get to see different projects. What have been the problems and the needs you have been addressing, you know, collectively with the people you work yeah. with? Yeah, so kind of three big buckets, right? Um, the first is instructional development, right? So we're continuing to want to move to a place where the work and instruction is deeper, it's more constructivist in nature. It's more discovery-based in nature. Kids are solving real problems. It's very community-based. That's not the normal, here are the standards, here are the curriculum, cover the curriculum piece. And so uh, that's a big bucket, uh, continues to be, and will. I mean, if we don't do the instructional piece right, all the rest around education is just kind of on the edge. But then we continue to also, in a second bucket, deal with how technology is influencing schools. Uh, there are great ways to use technology. There are lazy ways to use technology. Uh, but schools are still trying to figure out that mix as well. 
And then I've spent a lot of time over the last five or six years now thinking about the physical learning environment and what that environment does to impact both technology and instruction and the social emotional needs of students. And so really it's those three big buckets and how they play together. Mm -hmm. Can you boil down for me how these three buckets help you create the change you want to make? What is it that you are after? Yeah, I want students to be joyful in learning. I think as a middle school principal, I often said to teachers, half of your job is to help kids to still love learning, right? I have two daughters, one who's a seventh grader, one who's a sophomore in high school. I just want them to be inquisitive. I want them to be curious. I want them to dig into their own things. I want them to learn how to learn. And so I think as I'm thinking for school systems, I want those same sort of things. I want lots of kids to have multiple paths and multiple paces, right? And to me, that's the core of personalized learning is that because of who I am, I can go down this road and everyone will be supporting me. And because of who I am, I can go this quick or I can go this slow. And as we design systems that are agile and flexible, those things come to fruition. It's been nice to see in many places. How did uh, learning space design come into the full equation for you? Yeah, I, I would say five years ago, I never would have thought that this was at the core of my work. Uh, I sort of had a serendipitous collision with my co-author, Rebecca Hare. She is an amazing designer. Uh, she now is an amazing art teacher here in the St. Louis area. And the two of us started to have conversation about like, what should a well-designed space look like? And then how do we actually not just talk about it, but actually make that happen in action? And so, you know, I'm not an architect. I'm not an interior designer by training, but I think what I can do is help schools make change and optimize systems. And so if we can take the best practices of learning spaces that architects and designers bring, I help translate that language uh, make it digestible for teachers, and then really take them through a change process that helps to optimize uh, those spaces. And we're seeing really great results, both teachers loving their spaces and students loving the spaces in which they're learning. Mm -hmm. When the learning space is designed well, what role does it serve? I think first and foremost, it lowers stress and anxiety. I mean, the best spaces that we all have we walk into them and we go, oh. right? And that's what yeah. we want our students to do, right? Is to walk into a space and say, this is a place that cares about me. This is a place where my voice matters. This is safe. And so first and foremost, all of our spaces, uh, from the entryway of the school to the office, to the classroom should all be those types of spaces. And then also uh, we know that when students feel as though their voice and they have some agency over the design of a space, it goes a long way to really supporting what they need when they need it. Mm -hmm. When we think of uh, learning space and learning, because that's what we do in a learning space, what does uh, good learning look like when the design of the space is adequate? 
Yeah, one of the things we help uh, our students to learn as a part of a lot of the processes we do with schools is where they learn what best. And so when this is working well, students are making great choices about saying, I know I do math in this type of location. I know that I collaborate when I'm standing up better. I know that I'm re I read better and comprehend better when I'm sitting down and I'm away from other people. So it's this idea that we're empowering students with this knowledge about where they learn what best. And you see that when students have choice in the classroom, when they can articulate why they're in a certain place. And I think the learning that comes from that is both engaging and joyful. And the thing we know about engagement and joy is that they really are the precursors to academic success. And mm -hmm. so what we're trying to do with our learning space design is that kids are engaged, they like being there, they're satisfied with being there, and there's that level of positive energy and joy in that space as well. So that hopefully uh, we've set the tone uh, and the conditions for uh, really good learning. Mm -hmm. You already talked about different aspects uh, of learning that happen and preferences uh, that happen within the learning space. How can we make it flexible and design it to be agile? Yeah, lots of teachers are thinking about those pieces. Uh, we outline, Rebecca and I do in our book, The Space, A Guide for Educators, a couple of things to think about is if you can have um, items uh, there. So sometimes that's a standing desk and sometimes that's a table. But the idea is that you have a number of different options uh, for students to learn. Uh, we always talk about there being three options. Maybe it's a standing height option, a seated option, and some options that are closer to the floor. That you have one or two or three ways that the room can come together and be configured. And then that's based around a deep understanding about kind of the core actions or the core verbs that happen in your classroom. Seventh grade math feels different than high school Spanish, but like for every teacher, they know in my class, I want students doing this. The design can then be kind of molded around that and it becomes much more flexible at that point as well. Uh, and then I also hear, let's get feedback from kids, right? Like kids know what they want and what feels good and what doesn't work for them that also helps the whole cycle of being more flexible and agile. Mm -hmm. So what I hear, Bob, is that a, a teacher, an educator who creates, you know, who wants to create a learning space that's engaging and um, promotes active learning, they need to have uh, what you also describe as a design mindset, because it's not like a cookie cutter and it's not for everyone the same thing. For someone who is new to that, how, how can a teacher, how can an educator develop this uh, design mindset? Yeah, it's a great question. And it really is the basis for the work because like you said, every classroom in America looks different. It's different square footage. The sun hits it differently. What's in the room is different. Some things you have control and don't have control over. So you can't say do this. You can say here are some principles and here are some ideas, but here's what we know the designer's mindset isn't. It isn't, I set this up like I did last year without any thoughts of the students. 
that, hey, I grabbed the same boxes and put them in the exact same place, and I didn't put any intentional thought into it. We call that the setup mindset, right? We also know that it's not the decorator's mindset. That means that, oh my goodness, like the room looks totally decorated and everyone goes, oh, it looks great. You should put it on Pinterest, right? Like none of that helps us with the learning science of environments. The designer's mindset says, hey, I've thought about the research. I've been intentional and this is my first best effort. But throughout the year, I'm going to get feedback. I'm going to study it. I'm going to listen to students and we're going to continue to iterate over time. And if you can be committed to this iterative process, uh, the room as the year goes on will get better and better for the exact students that you have in the classroom. Mm -hmm. I love this point about getting feedback from the students as things evolve and uh, we are in the midst of a situation that's very different. But here is one, one thing that I want your help to understand a little bit better. Not every student has the same preferences. You know, we can refer to them as introverts or introverted and extroverted. We can also talk about different preferences. Some like to be sitting on the floor. Some like to be standing. Uh, some like to be closer to each other and talk. And some like to take a, like space and listen and reflect. So how do we make uh, a learning space inclusive? Yeah, we know when you don't feel welcome somewhere, the best you doesn't come out. And as with adults, I usually give them the example of like going to a gym, right? Like if you've ever been to a gym and like all these big muscle guys are lifting and you're walking in, you're like, I don't feel comfortable here. This isn't like my, my, my space. So you go in and it's all women working out and you're the only man in the class, right? You're like, should I be in the Zumba class? I don't know. This doesn't feel comfortable. So I give people that example of students feel those same sorts of things when they walk into a classroom. So we can do a couple of things. One, it's this piece about unpacking what is available to students. I think oftentimes teachers will assume that students know how to interact with a classroom, that they've been in tons of classrooms before, so they know how to be here. But if you start to unpack what's available, like, oh, at any point in time, if you want to stand in the back, you totally have permission to do that. If you ever think that the light is wrong in here, you can raise the blinds. So that whole like permission giving makes it feel more inclusive, right? There's also a piece in here where you say, you know, I recognize that this isn't ready for you yet. I don't know you very well. I'm still learning you as students. We're still connecting. And so that humble approach also allows for something to feel inclusive, right? When you're like, hey, I want to make sure I'm taking care of you and your empathy is kind of oozing out. Um, I think that students are like, okay, uh, even if it isn't perfect for me today, I can tell that there's a desire for to continue to work on this. And I think both of those mindsets and both of those approaches can definitely help. Mm -hmm. So you, we design it with them and not for them. Right. And, and I think that that also extends to, um, you know, I think I, I look at something like a pro problem-based learning or project-based learning environment, uh, super powerful. But what I often find is that teachers are figuring out what problems they want kids to solve, as opposed to going to the kids first and saying, what matters to you? I think one of the more powerful questions I bring to the table around that is, what are the five big problems that exist in your community 
and then asking kids that question because oftentimes teachers are kind of commuters to a space, right? Maybe they drive from another neighborhood to that school, do amazing work with kids, but they really don't know the neighborhood. But then they're like, oh, let's do this project-based learning assignment. And so um, I think we make that mistake around technology. I think we make that mistake around instruction. And we certainly have seen that teachers have designed their classrooms for kids and not with them. And uh, I just want to encourage teachers that uh, your best first effort might be for kids, and that's okay. It's the next parts where they're as valuable uh, of insight as you'll ever get. Because we also have space blindness, meaning that at some point in time, if we've been in a space for too long, we stop noticing the space. And so as you have space blindness, the best thing you can do is bring more voices and more ideas to the table. And that should be your students. And I guess this uh, relates to your work because you go to visit different schools and districts and you are in, you know, you are seeing these places with a very fresh eye. Whereas, you know, a teacher and educator who's been there for five years or 25 years, they are seeing the same thing. So actually they are probably not noticing anything of the things you are noticing. Right. And so it's an interesting <laughs> uh, space to go into, right? Like you don't want to go in and be critical. Uh, I go in as a question asker. Uh, how is this helping learning? Uh, what were you thinking here? Uh, but I do spend a lot of time in individual classrooms, uh, kind, of, uh, kind of bringing ideas back to life, uh, because I think we all naturally have that happen. Uh, we can walk into a room of our house today and say, oh my goodness, I haven't noticed that in a long time. And so when I do get to travel, uh, I really do love a number of things. One, doing focus groups with students to talk about space. Number two, being in classrooms and helping individual teachers. And then the last one is really emerging is that more and more school leaders are saying, okay, I'm seeing the power of this work in classrooms. I've walked into classrooms, I've observed the power of these flexible classrooms, these classrooms with choice. How do I bring that culture and concept to the entire school? How do I make sure from the outside of the building to the hallways, to the cafeteria, that that idea and priority permeates every space in the building? So lots of work happening there and actually will probably be the next book that Rebecca and I have will really be focused on kind of this guide for leaders to do that for their buildings. So let's uh, start unpacking some of the aspects you are talking about now. Uh, actually, I came across your work uh, when I saw uh, your article published on edsearch.com, which was basically uh, what a good classroom looks like. Uh, from a design point of view, especially today. But I think the practices uh, you are talking about are applicable even beyond the pandemic. I think they apply overall, you know, when we think about uh, active and engaging learning spaces. So the first one you talked about, which now I know why you are thinking of storytelling, is that when uh, someone comes in, whether it's a parent or the person who delivers a package, they need to basically immediately see that this is a place that learning is happening. So it's the signage and the first impression. Talk to us, how we do that? Yeah, so I can't tell you how many schools I drive by where I look at their sign and I say, that is such valuable real estate for a school that 80% of the community, 90% of the community never come in the building 
and you have an opportunity on that school sign to really let people know what's going on on the inside of the building. And so I think that's one place where we can start. But then I think about all the people that uh, enter the school on a daily basis, that their only impression is the walk up to the school, the entrance through the door, and maybe they make it to the office. And I just wonder what they think about that school just with that. You know, are there a hundred signs on the door that say no visitors and no trespassing and no this and no that? Or does it say like, we love having visitors here. Please come visit us. We do amazing things inside here. Uh, is there a coherence of color? Uh, are, are, is it a place where it feels old or it smells bad? I worked with one school where the entrance of their building had a really funny odor. And I said, the first thing that people think of this school is this place stinks. That's a bad first impression, right? Like no one wants that. And so uh, lots of things we can do uh, to kind of begin to shape the narrative about what is happening inside the building. Mm -hmm. The next uh, practice you talk about or a way is about optimizing the perimeter. What is, what is this about? Yeah, so in our classrooms, um, the walls of our classrooms are almost always something we can control. Even in a pandemic environment where people are saying you have to have desks six feet apart on the floor, teachers can still control what's on the walls. And so a couple of things you want to make sure you're doing is one, the learning science is really clear that cluttered walls are distracting for kids. And so really making that assessment that does that thing on the wall still help learning? Yeah, it may have helped learning a month ago, but does it still promote learning? When can we take down anchor charts? How many different colors are on our walls? I see a lot of decoration that looks like a bag of Skittles like exploded all over the walls. Just thinking about like, can we have a color palette that's coherent? So all of those things matter. And one of the things we're now finding is that that front of the room, which whether we like there to be a front of the room or not, there's usually a visual display, an interactive whiteboard, a television. What we're finding is how important it is to remove visuals around the big visual. And so oftentimes teachers will plant signs and things all around uh, that whiteboard display and it becomes really distracting. So I just encourage teachers once a week, look at one wall of your room and say, is everything here still supporting learning? And if not, we should take it down. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about uh, teachers having empathy uh, and maybe sharing some of their space or what, you know, what we call yeah. as teacher space that yeah. I remember as a student, I would not cross that line. <laughs> Yeah, um, and, and you know, I, I walk into a lot of rooms, right, where teachers don't realize what percentage of the classroom is off limits to kids. And sometimes they think that a larger percentage is available to kids and they've never asked. And so I always say, well, where can't you go in this classroom to a third grader? And they'll point to all well, behind the teacher desk or over here by this cabinet or wherever this is the room starts getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And especially in a time now where we need to have as many uh, square feet as possible for kids to learn, we have to say, 
is our teacher only space too big? And I always think of it as a percentage. So, okay, this many square feet is my space versus here's how big my room is. And oftentimes teachers don't know that number. And once they know the number, uh, they can then make a judgment because I trust teachers, right? Like I trust teachers immensely around this work, but if you don't have the number and you haven't been aware of it, it's kind of hard to make that adjustment. Mm -hmm. And that takes us to the next topic, which is about movement and choice, especially as we think about some of the schools uh, that will open and they will enjoy the physical interaction and connection and uh, learning, you know, in a classroom. How do we manage movement and how do we offer choices and being safe? Yeah, uh, the research is very clear that movement matters around learning, that we have to oxygenate our brains. And so sometimes that's just a brain break of, hey, we're going to stand up. Sometimes that's desk yoga, right, where we're doing some stretches around our desks. Sometimes it's telling students, well, you can sit on your desk while I'm talking as opposed to sitting in the seat. I think we underutilize the opportunity for kids to stand and listen. I don't know why we've always thought kids have to be seated to be listening. If we all stand, we can also listen. So I think, you know, three to five minutes of standing and listening or standing and doing uh, is always a better answer. But we also have to be thoughtful, especially right now, around healthy environments and doing that safely. Uh, some schools and some districts are going to have different rules around that. But uh, I don't think that we can be have an engaging, healthy, joyful place where kids come and sit in a desk for six and a half hours. So uh, whether that means we can get outside for a bit, whether that means that uh, there's uh, options for kids to stand next to their desk, uh, I think there's a lot of ways that we can be creative, but movement has to continue to be a part of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And the other aspect which I loved uh, reading about is the space and time, how you think about that, especially because we're hearing, you know, different scenarios and approaches that, uh, you know, schools will open, the ones that they will open. So how do we use space and time and time and space? Yeah, and, and, and they're definitely connected, right? It's hard to peel space away from time. Schools that are forward thinking, that are thinking systemically, that are thinking about change over time, are trying to figure out the right learning chunks, right? We know that 30 minutes at a time where you go 30 minutes to class, to class, to class, to class, doesn't allow our brain the time it needs to reflect, digest, make learning sticky, transfer knowledge from short-term to long-term memory. Uh, even in this online environment, we can't keep jumping from Zoom call to Zoom call to Zoom call without some moment to process. So uh, the way that we chunk our learning structures, our instructional time, whether that's online or in person, is really important. Uh, someone was asking me the other day, how much could we actually ask someone to focus before we give them time to reflect? Or, and, you know, a ballpark is a lot of times it's about the same amount of time as your age. Right. So 16 year olds, high schoolers, like every 15 minutes, they need at least some space to pause. I know this gives our kindergartner teachers uh, who are teaching five year olds, but they know like every five or seven minutes, they've got to be doing something a little bit different. They've got to change the orientation. They've got to change what they're presenting. Um, we push kids way into the red around focus uh, and attention in a time and place where everything in their world beyond school is trying to steal their attention. 
and steal their focus. Um, it's a skill that we have to build over time and it, it isn't uh, one. So if our learning chunks are really long, we're not setting kids up for success. Mm -hmm. So now we have uh, two additional learning spaces that we did not have them as essential or as uh, significant before the pandemic. The first one is that our homes are now learning spaces. So which aspects or which good practices from what we, you talked about, can we apply, you know, to our house, to our home, to, to create engaging, active and effective uh, learning spaces? Yeah, it's a great question. And we ha will have more students trying to figure this out and we'll all be trying to do a better version of what we did in the spring. Uh, even for my daughters, uh, uh, I've watched them and I've studied where they've been effective and where they haven't. So that's a good start, uh, kind of to be an anthropologist of your own house if you're a parent. Where is this working? Where is this not working? Uh, but what we know is natural light and fresh air is always a good answer. Um, we also know uh, that breaks are important and we know that movement's important. So none of that changes uh, from where we're learning. And so whatever we can do to introduce that. I think we also need to be careful that we don't overstructure time, that we build in time that's just downtime. Uh, so it's really finding that balance when students have asynchronous time, you know, they're not meeting face to face with their teacher that, you know what, my daughter does better if she doesn't work between 11 and one. So let me try to capture some of that time back and maybe she's better between two and three. So we don't have to stay on a school type of schedule because the school type of schedule actually isn't optimal learning. It just happens to be when they're at school. So uh, continuing to think about time and continuing to think about ways that kids have multiple places to learn. And you know, when they're reading and when they're doing math and when they're studying Spanish, maybe they're in different locations as well. And that can be really healthy as well to have multiple spaces throughout your home where it's possible for kids to have learning segments. Mm -hmm. How do we bring some of the learnings and good practices to the digital learning space? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we do know that it's hard to communicate as a teacher in a digital space. We know that it is harder to make connections in a digital space. Uh, and I think those are the two focus uh, or two foci there that you would want to make sure. So our digital space has to have very clear, concise and consistent communication. Uh, folks need to know that when they go to a location where the information is going to be on a consistent basis. And I think that teachers know that they want that to be the case. But we go all the way back to have you asked your students how you could do that better that make that clear but if you go to any website that's your favorite website and you know where stuff is you know when you go to the local news station that you click on weather and the map comes up and then you know you come down here and click students need that same consistency with their learning management system or whatever tools that they're using so uh, that pieces of the digital space matter tremendously i also think that beauty and music and art can be a place of your digital space as well. Um, the idea that you can, you know, I don't need it to be decorated, but the idea that your choice of color matters and where you lay things out and your design, all of those things have a calming effect for people 
or they come and they're like, oh, where is it? It's I'm, I'm in a disarray. I'm not sure where to look. Remember, every space is about lowering stress and anxiety and making people feel welcome. And so if you're doing that in your physical space, we can do some of that with our digital space as well. How do we create a moment of, uh, of silence or quiet moments when we are, let's say, on a Zoom call? Yeah, um, that's interesting. And um, we know that now more than ever, kids need quiet. We need moments that we're not picking up our phone and we're not getting another notification and we're not waiting for this and we're not doing that. That's a skill that we need, some of that mindfulness work. So a couple things we can do in a Zoom space, um, lots of great guided meditations that are 30 seconds, 90 seconds long that you could start with. Uh, you could introduce some music that students aren't familiar with and is a certain tempo uh, as a piece of what you're doing. All of that gives us some space for quiet. We can also ask students to turn off their video and turn off their audio and just listen so that there's not visual distraction going on. Uh, now, you can't do that forever, but those are all moments that you can take. Hey, you know what? We're all really busy. We're going to take 90 seconds. Everybody turn their camera off. Everybody turn their microphone off. We're going to listen to this. We'll come back in 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. You put a lot of uh, power and empowerment on the teacher uh, to design their learning space. And I like that. But what about the role of the teacher, like talking to the parents and discussing with the students to prepare them, even if we don't, let's say, return immediately? Maybe we start online, maybe in, in October or November, maybe, you know, what message do teachers need to share with the parents and then with the students? Yeah, so a couple of things. One, as a teaching force, we have to enter in this space with some joy. We may not want to be in here. We may want to be in our classroom, but we have to enter with a sense of like, we are going to make this great. We are going to do our best for this to be a great experience for kids because if we enter into it with melancholy or with a negative attitude, the parents and families and kids will go along with that. And so we do have to say, you know what? I don't like it, but we're going to make the best of it. I'm excited to be here. So that's a piece one. Piece two is this is very different for our families. Uh, students are very resilient. They'll roll with whatever we need them to do. But I think we have to unpack our thinking as teachers more often in an online space. And so that probably means two minute, three minute videos for families to say like, well, you know, the reason that we had this chunk here and then we had this chunk here was because of this. Uh, teachers do so much intuitively, uh, but th we need to unpack that a little more because as this space feels very different for our families, they need some kind of guideposts about why things are happening more often. And then the other piece is that we just need to realize that what probably took us a couple of weeks to make levels of connection with our kids and have relationships, we're now seeing that that might take up to two months. So you go from two weeks to two months in being able to have the same level of connection and relationship. And so just making sure that we're intentional for a longer period of time around building community and building culture. Um, one more question, because there are people who are listening and they're intrigued by what you are sharing and your insights and experience, but maybe they're new to design. They haven't considered all the aspects that you talked about. 
Do you have a couple of simple steps, perhaps questions they need to ask? You know, let's say the first time they go into their uh, into their home and their learning space for the ch- child, or when they go back to their classrooms. What are the one or two steps or questions they need to ask? One of the things that I hope right away is that people can uh, disrupt uh, the inertia, right? And so we have this kind of inertia and momentum of how we've always done things with our spaces. Uh, And so even if you can make some minor changes, it starts to disrupt that. It allows you to notice things different, take different actions. So one of the things I'll ask teachers is, can you find five to 10 things in your room that you can get rid of? And oftentimes people are like, oh, that old dictionary and this old thing. But the momentum of that change helps and goes with that. The other thing I would encourage is that places that you're in your community that you like, start to take note of why you like them. Uh, Is it because of the color? Is it because of the spacing between tables? Is it because of the trees? What What is it? that makes that a comfortable space for you. Now, you're not going to be able to replicate that in your classroom, but you might be able to draw some knowledge across. Another great starting place to do that as well. Your answer brought back full circle to your first, the first story you talked about, which is about noticing. Yeah. I, there, <laughs> there's a fantastic book that has that word so in my vocabulary. There's a book called The Art of Noticing, And it is a fun read and one of those books where you don't want to read it so fast because it's so good you don't want it to end. Uh, But it's been really key over the last couple years for me to name what I've known. And uh, I love when I can read something that takes what I know to be true and puts some words to it. And uh, I think that's what I'm also trying to do with the writing that I do as well. Teachers know this stuff, but I hope that I can name it and put... Uh, uh, a journey together for them uh, so that they can see that this is possible to do amazing things for kids. Beautiful. My favorite question, what is one thing you would like to leave your mark on within your lifetime? I would like to have a general store in a ski town where if the skiing was really good that day, the people in the town would be like, it's okay, Bob, there's good powder. You can go ski today. You will buy our stuff from you tomorrow. I want that level of trust from a community uh, that I'm contributing to in a deep way. So it may not be in learning, uh, but it's about contributing in a deep way uh, to um, the small world that I live in on this big planet. Thank you so much, Bob. That was uh great great discussion i really loved uh, your insights thank you for the work you do thank you for creating more impact working with more districts and uh, with all the work you do thank you so much well thanks for having me this has been great and uh, best of luck to you as well if you enjoy listening to impact learning please leave us a review on itunes to help people like you find this podcast you can also subscribe and never miss an episode And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidou. 
Till next time.